This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson, and I'm incredibly excited to have for the first time on the Deep Dives podcast, Ignacio Rosotto. Ignacio, how are you doing this fine evening? How's everything? Um, I'm really excited about being here, not just on the podcast, but on No Ceilings in general. It's been awesome for my first few months here have been awesome, so uh, I was, you know, ready to do one of these, and uh, I think the the piece that you chose to to do one of these deep dives is one of the least expected by me because I I talk about players that I don't want to say nobody's talking about them. There are certainly people talking about both the, both of the players that we're gonna talk about today, but they have zero draft buzz. So uh, that that you chose these players is, is is super interesting, and I'm really excited to talk about them. Well, hey, it's deep dive, so you know we're diving deep, and we can certainly dive deeper with some other pieces in the future. But you know, this is a medium deep dive to start. You know, pools uh, deep enough where you can still swim if you're learning, but you know, maybe not <laughs> the deep end, right? Somewhere in the middle of the pool. Yeah, and uh, I mean, the world has had enough of people talking about Nikola Topic and <laughs> Alexar, which I love as prospects. Uh, but but definitely the the draft community needs more of uh, players, people talking about players who um, really nobody nobody else is kind of covering in this way. So we are going to focus most of our discussion today on the two players featured in your most recent article. We need to talk about Hanson Yang and Eli John Njai, which, you know, is pretty telling in terms of the two players that we're going to talk about right in the title. But before we get into discussing those two prospects specifically, 
I did want to just start off with where you start the article, which has always been a fascinating discussion to me. And so I'm just going to read verbatim from what you wrote, because it's going to be a lot better than me spitballing off the top of my head. If yeah. you've ever compiled a big board or published any sort of list, you've asked yourself this question before. Why is it that the first comment under any sort of list is always about why a certain player hasn't made the list? And, you know, I think that's funny in general, but I think it's very fitting in specific conversation with these two players because you're right. On the one hand, you know, there certainly hasn't been much draft buzz about either of these guys, you know, slightly more about Yang than Enjai. But it is funny that, you know, we will be having a big board, uh, excuse me, a no ceilings mock draft coming out later today after this episode is dropped. And already in the comments from teasing that mock draft for tomorrow, there are people saying, there better be this guy on the list. There better be that guy on the list. It's really funny how that's just always consistently the trend. And I do love how you started out this piece with diving into that discussion. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I don't want to say it's it's frustrating because it is what it is. And I think, um, I, I just think I would love some, some more positive reinforcement from uh, people yeah. who are in, in, in the draft community because, Generally, we don't get like a "Hey, good list, good, etc." And we always get "Hey, where's my guy?" Yeah. Um, and when people see their guy on the list, it's never "Hey, awesome that you think this player is awesome as well." I think maybe it's more of a commentary on maybe a lot of our interactions should start. We should interact more with people that we agree instead of always interacting with, with people who disagree. Uh, because also like whenever there's a bunch of comments, if somebody says, Hey, great job. Maybe you don't reply to them, but you reply to the, why isn't this player <laughs> here? And when, when you talk about international players, you get another layer of people asking for their guys, because it's like, there's obviously a lot of rooting for your local guy to be there. And there's also a lot of, um, maybe I haven't watched, maybe I'm from Spain and I have watched the guys playing in the Spanish league and I haven't watched any of the players in the French league or the Chinese CBA or, or whatever. And I, and maybe I don't have that. I, I see that players are thriving in my own league, but I don't realize that there are more players outside the world and that the universe is bigger than my own local league. Um, but I definitely get it. I mean, I wish Santiago Vescovi was uh, from here, from here, from Uruguay, would be a, a bigger NBA prospect, and I'll be rooting for him all the way. Um, but yeah it's it when when you talk about international prospects there's always going to be comments from french people trying to prop up the french guys and spanish people trying to prop up the spanish guys and so on it's really funny because there's such a stark dichotomy with that particular problem i mean as a kings fan i remember how incredibly excited and you know overjoyed the Indian community was when Simbalar played his three games for the Sacramento Kings and how it was such a, you know, festival of joy that he finally got to play for, you know, the NBA team as opposed to being mired in the G League. And, you know, the flip side is, you know, 
it became a bit of an inside joke among no ceilings at the time of just how aggressive the Kai Soto fans were anytime Kai Soto was not in the top oh, 60 God. on a big board or anything. And, you know, it's really funny how there is that sort of very stark difference between sometimes it's just all joy, all positivity. Awesome that our guy, you know, made it for even just a little stretch. And then there's the flip side of the vitriol of, you know, he's not making it. Our guy's not making it. This must be a conspiracy against our guy, you know, rather yeah. rather than sort of anything else on that particular front. I think when you, in my case, me being from Uruguay, like I always say, this country cares about soccer and soccer only. So if we get a guy who is even mentioned in terms of bas being a basketball prospect, you know, we love it and we don't feel entitled yeah. that this guy should be on mock drafts or big boards. Even like when the la I would say like four years ago, I had, you know, Euro League scouts and NBA scouts asking me about Bescovi and Agustin Uval from, from Barcelona. And I, I was my first thing as from being from from here is like it's not shock, but it's like oh awesome! Like it's being surprised that they are considered in that level because I know what your way in basketball is and the level of basketball here, and it's like oh awesome that they could make it out of here. Um, but there are countries, of course, that have more history of success and more prospects and they they got prospects out every year and so if uh we don't get their their prospects on our rankings it's even a slight bit offensive to them it's i i mentioned this in in our mock draft the other day um the there's a couple of people i've seen in in the spanish uh, draft twitter that believes it's kind of a conspiracy that all the French guys are, you know, up on the boards and we don't have Adaimara and uh, Eli John Jae and Juan Nunez in, in, in mock drafts. And uh, I agree, I think Juan Nunez is awesome and should potentially be a first-round pick. But uh, if people from Spain don't understand why Adaimara is not on a mock draft, I think they should go and look at the stat sheet. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, certainly someone who has looked a little bit better on the stat sheet than Adaimara so far this season is Hanson Yang. So let's talk about him and sort of move into breaking down his game. He's someone who, you know, very interesting, comes from certainly a bit more of a, you know, not to be unkind, but a bit more of a basketball hotbed than Uruguay. But, you know, with Yang, it's very interesting in that it seems like there's a wide range between people who are talking him up as, you know, potential first round pick, potential first round pick and people who just aren't talking about him at all. And, you know, I think it's interesting that there's such a wide range on him, but, you know, with your discussion of him, it's, I think a bit more middle of the road than either of those two extremes. Yeah. And I think I tend to be a bit more middle of the road when it, when it comes to pros when it comes to evaluating prospects. And I, Try to not not get carried away by the hype, but also try to see if there's an avenue for every prospect to become an NBA player. And I certainly do think that there's an avenue for Young to become an NBA player down the line. Um, he has just absolutely elite size. He's seven one. Um, he's incredibly incredibly fluid and graceful with his movement um no, not somebody who's really like super explosive and and that's part of his limitation and why I don't get a lot of the hype on him but he he moves so incredibly well for his size um and has really good body control and so when you take a guy with those elite physical tools and really good movement skills. And you also add some level of passing vision, which I believe he has, I believe he has shown and a great level of touch around the basket. Uh, I think it's easy to see the uh, path for such a player to get to the NBA. But of course there's the limitations as well. Why I can't go out and say, like I've seen, oh, he's the the Chinese Jokic. I think that's kind of insulting for anybody who's who's reading or listening or watching, um, because rule number one of making draft content: don't go out and compare every prospect to a future Hall of Famer. But uh, but I do believe that Yang absolutely has a a path to becoming an NBA player. Yeah, it's unfortunate when those sort of comparisons come up because not only is it, you know, unfair for the reader, but it's also unfair for Yang himself to have yes. that level of expectation on an 18-year-old. But I'm really glad you mentioned the physical tools in the way that you did because, you know, it's the kind of thing where a lot of people might see that he's, you know, relatively slow up and down the floor, that he's not very explosive as you mentioned, but Athleticism and athletic tools are about so much more than that, especially when you're evaluating a prospect like Yang, who has legitimate NBA size already. But, you know, a lot of guys, you know, once you get into the seven 
foot plus range, you get a lot of guys who just, you know, are awkward out there that they don't, you know, move like you would expect a player who's NBA quality to move. And with Yang, you know, it's the kind of thing where, okay, you know, he's not going to sprint up and down the floor like, you know, an Aaron Bradshaw, but he's someone who moves really fluidly for his size and is already, you know, at 18, got a really sturdily built frame that makes it easy to sort of project, you know, okay, he's not going to be the most athletic center in the NBA. But I mean, especially when you're his size and you move with the fluidity that he has, you know, it's a lot more nuanced of a discussion about athletic tools than just saying, oh, he doesn't have a 40-inch vertical. This guy's not an athlete. 100%. And I think when you are a certain size, how high can you jump is really not that interesting. The the, the only, um, like, the, the biggest thing about how high can you leap or is, like, can you reach the rim? Can you dunk? And yeah, if you're seven one, like <laughs> you barely get off the ground, and you're gonna be finishing place at the rim. the The limitation with Yang is not that he doesn't have like a super high vertical; is that, in my opinion, he doesn't come out with a ton of power in mm-hmm. in in his jumps, in his leaping ability, and so he can he tends to shy away from contact. He relies on those like super tough shots off balance or he, you know, is forced to take his shots, you know, outside of the restricted area, which makes the type of shots he takes um, makes makes them makes him a not as an not as efficient as a player as he could be as an interior scorer. The other side of of the coin is that he just possesses such great touch from those in those tough shots that you feel like okay what could he be if he gained a bit more weight if he had more strength if he didn't got knocked off balance if he doesn't lose the ball when when he's coming up with it um and 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 that's that's kind of where the path, you know, opens up and says, okay, if he was able to overcome these type of limitations, um, he can definitely be an NBA prospect. Um, and so it, it depends on how much stronger or how tougher you think he can get with time. And this is this is something that I kept in my head as I was watching his film and taking notes and, and writing this. Even if I see all the limitations as a prospect, he's still 18 years old, and he will mm-hmm. be 18 until the day the day right before the draft. Uh, he, I think his uh, June draft is on June 27. I think he was born on June 26. So he will be 18 years old right around the date of the draft. And you know, he still has four drafts ahead of him in which he will be eligible. So maybe this year is not the draft where you take him. But it wouldn't surprise me if he comes back next year, if he put on weight, if he added muscle mass. And now a lot of those limitations of him as a scorer, I don't think the lack of explosiveness will... I think the lack of explosiveness will always be a limitation, but he can... There's so many ways in which you can 
you know, um, limit the concerns, like you can compensate for that. Uh, you can compensate with good touch around the basket. You can compensate with the footwork to find the open spaces, both things that I believe Yang has. And also you can compensate by, by getting stronger and just being more adept at playing through contact. Uh, and I think that's something, if, if that's something that he can add in the next couple of years, then definitely I see a path for him as an NBA prospect. Yeah, I think that's, you know, the thing. It's fascinating because the fact that his touch is so good makes sort of the areas where he needs to improve slightly different. Like if he were a DeAndre Jordan type who only shot within five feet of the basket, yes, the lack of explosiveness is a real problem because if your entire game is getting up for alley-oop dunks and you can't jump that high, that's a bit of a problem. But with Yang, it's like he has the requisite touch to be someone who's not just, you know, right around the basket and in kind of score. And so because that's the kind of player he is, that's the way his game works, it's much more important for him than, you know, say a DeAndre Jordan type, right? To work, to bulk up, to get stronger, to be able to muscle guys around the basket because, you know, yeah, sure, the vertical explosiveness is something that probably isn't going to improve, right? But for him, it matters a lot less than it would for some other center prospects. On the flip side, it makes it all the more imperative that he gets stronger so that, you know, those finesse tough shots that he's taking can be from eight feet out instead of 12 feet, 15 feet out. Yeah, 100%. And I think that one one of the things that separate him from, let's mention other, pros, other recent prospects who... Um, had those same limitations in, in terms of explosiveness and compensated with great touch. I think the first one that comes to mind is Alperen Shengun. And of course, the reference for prospects with great touch, body control, and size, but not great explosive, explosiveness is Jokic. I think the thing that both of them had going and Yang does not is that they were both really strong. Yeah. Even coming, even if they improve upon that at the NBA, once they reach the NBA, they were already really strong when they were in their domestic leagues. Um, and so I think that I think strength is something that we at times take for granted, and at Great. times we believe that oh he's he's going to get stronger in the NBA, and and I do believe that if you're going to ever get stronger, it's going to be on an NBA strength and conditioning program. Um, but sometimes it, it just doesn't happen. And sometimes getting stronger is what separates you from being an NBA rotation player from between that and being out of the league uh, uh, at the time your rookie contract ends. I think one of that's one of the things that for me, I learned that with uh, Alexei Pokushevsky, mm-hmm. who I believe has all a ton of skills, like a really interesting combination of skills in and uh, in, in great size, but he just doesn't have the strength to play at the NBA level. And at times that's a, a fatal flaw that you just can't overcome. So I think definitely something that should be mentioned with more players and should be uh, monitored when it comes to Yang. 
And and also here here's the other thing. We are now seeing Big, Victor Wembanyama and and Chad Holmgren, you know, being the two best rookies this year, and they are seemingly on their way to dominate the league in in four years. I believe that the trend of taking skinny players is going to um, we're going to see the pendulum swing on. Oh, if 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 Holmgren and Wembanyama could play in the league, being as skinny as they were. Let's just take the skinny player, and we're gonna see a lot of a lot of those skinny players in the next three or four years that get taken because of the Wemby and and Chad effect. We're gonna see those players bust, and then the pendulum's gonna swing the other way, and we're gonna see centers with a more traditional, stronger body get taken, and we're gonna move back and forth depending on who's uh, being successful at the NBA level. Isn't it Poku breakout season though? Uh, if, 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 uh, if my fantasy team named Poku breakout season is any sort of proof, we're nine and one and we're dominating the no ceilings fantasy league. So Currently kicking my ass specifically as well. So thank yeah, you for that. The past week I won by 0. 0.60 <laughs> points. <laughs> like, I don't know how I did it. Uh, but I, I guess I'm a, I've been a waiver warrior, man. I think I have the mo- most moves in the league. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm dominating, which means that I'm going to collapse in the playoffs. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> but anyway, um, back to Yang. I think Pokashevsky is a very interesting comparison to bring up just because I think part of the deal with Yang is that he's got much broader shoulders than a lot of the guys who just yes. are skinny legends for most of their career like with yang it's a lot easier for me to imagine him filling out and adding weight than it is for someone like pokashevsky yeah a hundred percent a hundred percent and i think even when you saw him and and this is like the the leap and level of competition and why it's important to watch players in multiple contexts um if you watch them at the at the u19 world cup he looked like a monster. He looked tremendously big and and stronger than everybody. Now I watch him in the Chinese CBA, and one of the games I watched, he was really struggling about against six foot ten fringe former fringe NBA player Eric Moreland. Uh, and so that was kind of eye opening to say, wow, it, once he gets to the NBA, he's probably going to struggle even more with his current body uh but like you said he has a a nice frame it's just a matter of filling it up but my my point i guess is that it's not always as easy as oh yeah he'll just add strength for sure because there's metabolism involved and there's a, a whole ton of things involved uh but he certainly has more um a better chance of filling out than prospects who have narrow shoulders, like a Poku, like an Usman Jiang, uh, even even Chad. I don't know how how much Chad is going to fill out in time, really. Yeah, I mean, you know, some guys like say KD never really did fill out, and in his yeah. case, it didn't really matter, and in Chad's case, it might not really matter all that much either. Either, but for someone who doesn't have the you know lateral mobility and speed up and down the floor that Chet and KD and Weminyama do, it's a bit of a different story. 
let's use that to sort of move over to talking about the defensive discussion. And, you know, this is sort of a similar thing to what you mentioned with the strength in a very specific way in that the context is critical here. And, you know, for Yang against U19 players, he looks a lot different than he does, as you mentioned, against, you know, grown professional non-teenagers who, you know, in the case of Moreland, got a cup of coffee in the NBA. But, you know, even besides that, it's very different to go up against fellow teenagers versus, you know, trying to play against grown professionals. But, you know, the defensive context is similar to that just purely in the sense that if you have Yang sitting in the paint, he's going to do well. You know, he's currently leading the CBA in blocks, as you mentioned in the piece. But, you know, when you try and ask him to guard more mobile players, that's where things tend to break down. And there's a very fascinating dichotomy going on in the NBA right now of, you know, drop versus switch defensive teams. And, you know, a lot of teams are employing switching defenses, you know, certainly a lot more than they did, you know, five, 10 years ago. But, you know, for certain specific teams, they're pretty much purely drop teams. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where, if you're putting Yang in a system where he's just hanging back around the basket as, you know, the one guy down in drop defense versus trying to get him to switch on the perimeter, it's going to be very different in terms of what his defense looks like at the NBA level. You know, there's a easy way to see him succeeding in a drop defense. And on the flip side, it's even easier to see him being really, really tough to watch in a you know, more switch heavy context. I'll, I'll co-sign on that. If you ask him to switch, at least at the beginning, it's going to be very painful because I don't think I um, one of the things that I wrote is uh, embarrassingly, embarrassingly slow in drop coverage and rotation, uh, simply can't slide laterally. And uh, that's one of the things that I wrote in my in my raw notes, because when he did switch or when he was tasked with defending in the perimeter in the CBA, um, yeah, he was just getting beaten up to triple consistently. Um, I, I, I do think that, and, and here's my concern with him, there's going to be a baseline of defensive, and I always mention this with guys who are seven foot plus. There, with your size and your length, there's always going to be a baseline of defensive production that you're going to get just for, for from being that big and being around the basket. Um, there's also a huge difference and a huge leap between that and being an M, a, the primary rim protector of an NBA team, being able to anchor a defense. You need more than being big. And one of the things that you need is to be quick to rotate, be quick to come from the corner uh, because... Of course, the uh, FIBA doesn't have the defensive uh, three seconds rule, and the NBA does. So you can't sit around the paint all day. And also, unlike most teams overseas, um, the NBA will have times where teams will play five shooters, and you need to play five out. Um, and that doesn't really happen a ton. Of, at the CBA level, and certainly didn't happen at the FIBA U19 World Cup, um, and so that's that's what's interesting: the three different levels of um, competition and the three dif different like the three different type of skill sets that you need to have to be a defensive anchor. 
at the Viva U19 World Cup, he could stay around the basket because defenses, uh, sorry, op opponents and their offensive schemes weren't as sophisticated. So he just needed to concentrate on whenever there was triple penetration, he can just rotate, like take one step and block the shot. That was basically it. Then he goes to the CBA. Oh, okay. Now I have to hold my own on post-ups against guys who are smaller than me, but went to the NBA. I need to, uh, if, if by any chance there's a team playing five out or there's, you know, kind of a scramble situation outside of an offensive rebound, then I need to see where my guy is and I get a perimeter guy. I need to go and step outside. Maybe there's more pick and rolls. I need to know if I can drop, if I have to rotate. And that takes a, a different type of skill set. And he's still producing, making 2.7 blocks per game. Uh, but then there's also a leap to the NBA where almost every team will have a couple of five out lineups and he'll need to step outside. He'll need to know when to rotate from the corner because he's going to be the low man. Um, and so that's, that's what, what's really interesting for me that do I see him as a primary rim protector at the NBA level? Not really due to the lack of quickness and the lack of, you know, vertical pop, so to speak. Uh, because I, I, I worry that he's always going to be a sec, uh, a slight second late to, you know, rotate and, and get to the basket and, and contest shots. But there's also like with that size, there's a baseline of defensive productivity that I believe that he's always going to have. Um, and, and that's maybe why I'm not super in on him as a first round prospect. Uh, because I think, yes, He's massive. Yes, he's really interesting offensively in terms of scoring and passing off the post, but he needs to do so much more to be a primary rim protector at the NBA level. Yeah, I think ultimately what it boils down to for me is that there are a few contexts and situations where he makes a lot of sense. I mean, just, you know, as an example, the team that I watch most in the NBA, the Sacramento Kings, you know, they could, and, you know, Trey Lyles has been doing a lot of this work, but, you know, he's a smaller guy, but they could really use a big man who can come in and run the Kings offense to a same, at least sort of types, the same sort of variety of player as a Demonis Sabonis. And, you know, with Sabonis, it's, you know, not all offense, no defense, because that, you know, negates what he does on the glass in particular. But, you know, the idea being there are teams that, you know, more and more over the past, even two, three seasons have started to run the offense through big men, you know, more often than it has been for a while. And so for Yang to come in as a potential, you know, backup slash, you know, end of the bench big for the Kings, I think he could make a lot of sense. You know, similarly for the Nuggets, you know, having someone who can operate as a playmaker, you know, out of the high post or out of DHOs at the top of the key, those teams could really use someone like Yang, you know, on the flip side, if you're say a team like the Charlotte Hornets who really, really struggle defensively and, you know, a lot of their offense when he's healthy runs through LaMelo ball. And when he hasn't been healthy, it's been running through Terry Rozier as his backup, right? If, 
Yang goes to a team like Charlotte, I think his pathway to NBA minutes is a lot more difficult to see than if he goes to a team that makes a lot more sense for his skill set, like, say, you know, as a bench player for either the Kings or the Nuggets. Yeah, you you hit it right there. Um, I think know exactly what you're getting with Yang before drafting him. And don't ask him to be something that he's probably not going to be. Like, and it goes back to our conversation in the beginning. Yes, he's massive, but he's not going to be your DeAndre Jordan type. He's not going to be a, a rim runner. He's not going to be, uh, you know, your run the floor, dunk on one end, and then run the floor and block a shot on the other end. Uh, but there's a, a, an awesome, you know, combination of, skills and size there that the right team with the right offensive context can can really take advantage of um and and you mentioned denver and sacramento and i think uh houston is another team Mm -hmm. that could really benefit from him because they also have a center that's becoming the 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 center uh, of, of of their offense in Oprah Schengen. Um, just send him to a team that's ready to uh, have a guy, you know, get post touches and direct traffic from the post and make passes and 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 play from there. And not a lot of te- teams uh, with their current personnel are equipped to do that but there's two or three teams that would certainly look at yang look at his size look at his ability to score inside look at his ability to pass from the post and say yeah that's the right combination of skills that we need and we can work with that this episode is brought to you by shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. So let's now move on to the other prospect who you covered at length in this article. and. Eli John Njai is, I think, particularly interesting to me just because of essentially what you mentioned at the very top about the fact that, you know, he comes from a long and decorated lineage of Real Madrid phenoms, and yet he hasn't gotten anywhere near the same amount of attention as even some of, you know, I mean, the top flight guys like Luka Doncic, you know, Alexander Saar, Juan Nunez. Yeah, of course, that's a lot easier to see, you know, Usman Garuba, but there's a difference between NGI and even some of the sort of, you know, quote unquote, lower tier uh, Real Madrid prospects who were in the same sort of, you know, level as a potential phenom as NGI. 
Yeah, Real Madrid is is a true factory. Like I'm not saying anything new here, but for a lot of draft fans that now see Juan Núñez playing for Rachi Farm in in Germany and see Isan Almanza in the Ignite or see Alexandre Sar down there in Australia, those three played together for Real Madrid. Um, in uh, uh, 2004 and 2005 generation, that was just insane because they also had Jan Bide, who's now on, on UCLA, going through some growing pains of uh, playing for that team. And, and, and now you have, and of all of those prospects, um, the only one that kind of quote-unquote survived and made it to Real Madrid's senior team is Eli. So in, in, in a way, like Real Madrid, you know, stuck with him and, and picked him and the other players left Madrid looking for opportunities or in some cases looking for NIL uh, money at the NCAA level or looking for somewhere where they could, you know, um, maximize their potential as to get to the NBA to show and to play against against pros. And so it's kind of interesting that out of all those prospects, Real Madrid probably maybe consistently one of the top three teams in the world outside of the NBA, that out of all those prospects, Eli is the only one who gets to play consistently for Real Madrid. And out of all those prospects, he's the only one not getting any sort of draft buzz. Um, so there's definitely some kind of disconnection there. And that's what I, I try to explore with the piece. Yeah, there's definitely a disconnect there. But, you know, I think something that's also interesting is Njai treads a line with the kind of player he is that I think has become more and more interesting to evaluate over the past few years in the sense that, you know, when five years ago you would talk about a tweener prospect, it was almost always someone who was between forward spots, like someone who, you know, yeah. had less of a, you know, perimeter game, more of an interior focused game, but, you know, they were on the shorter side for a power forward. And, you know, the archetypical example of what that used to be was, you know, someone like, say, uh, Jay Crowder, who, you know, has been more of a shooter at times than other times, but really had a lot more of a paint-focused game than a perimeter game. And, you know, so he was sort of seen as someone who, oh, he's not quite quick enough to play the three, but not quite big enough to play the four. And nowadays it's become a lot more between the four and the five, where, you know, someone like Onyeka Kongwu is pretty much a pure center just based on his skill set, but he's six eight six nine, And, you know, with Kongwu, he makes up for it with absolutely ridiculous athleticism. But, you know, it's the kind of situation where, especially as more and more teams, as we talked about earlier, try to trend toward, you know, more four out kind of systems, right? If you're a big man who can't particularly shoot, you're pretty much pigeonholed into being a five. But if you're six, eight, like Enjai or, you know, six, nine, six, eight, somewhere around that range, like a Kongwu, it's a lot different of an ask than it used to be because, you know, it used to be, okay, that's just a non-shooting power forward. You know, every team has non-shooting power forwards right now. It's like, if you're going to run four out and you can't shoot, you essentially have to be the big, but if you're not, you know, tall enough, then you have to make up for it in other ways. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think like we are trending also in a direction where we are seeing six foot 10 wings 
and mm-hmm. we are seeing six foot eight centers. So yeah. it's I, I I think it's not that every every wing is six foot ten, but for me, like one of the top players in this draft, which is Zachary Sachet, uh, for me, he's a six foot ten wing. Like I know we list him as a forward, but he he has more of the skill set of a two three than a three four. But with his size, he can defend threes and fours. So having the size and having the movement skill of a certain position gives you a level of versatility that is certainly valued more than maybe not having those movement skills and being sort of uh, a specialist in in a sense um but but the nba is becoming a league where everybody's going to trend towards being six eight six seven six nine and and like the small point guard is dying the huge seven foot two seven foot three center is also dying unless you're you have movement skills that allow you to do things in the perimeter or be quick to and and connecting that with yang that's kind of the problem for yang that um even if he's super big he doesn't have a ton of movement skills in terms of being quicker and etc and so now we have in jai with who is six eight but his movement skills like he's agile but he's not like he's agile in terms of like running the open floor, straight line speed, but not really somebody who is going to hang around wings, even though he has his size is closer to a wing than a center. So that create really creates a problem. Uh, I, I feel like the tweener, I feel like there are players who are still tweeners, but the term has evolved. It used to be like, you're not like you say you're not as strong enough to be a a four, but you're not quick enough to be a three. Now it's like you have the movement skills of a center, or you have the movement skills of a forward, but you don't have the physical tools to defend like them. Or you have the move, the size of a wing, but you don't have the movement skills of a wing. If that makes any sense. No, totally. I think it's fascinating. I think there's another end of this discussion that. I think plays into it, you know, the sort of going thing for a while was, you know, positionless basketball of, you know, the Toronto Raptors doing the, you know, project six, nine thing, right. Everybody being basically the same size, switch cross positions, all of that. And I think what's been fascinating for me over the past couple of years is seeing guys like Bruce Brown and Gary Payton, the second having the success that they've had in the roles that they've played where Gary Payton, the second was essentially a six foot three center on offense. You know, he, didn't you know guard big men all that much defensively but you know it was a lot more about okay you know we have this theoretical concept of an offense we want to run of you know it's a four out offense and you know our primary initiator and our secondary initiator and you know other than that you know everybody else will play around you know the two guys who are most likely to have the ball in their hands and at least is something like you know Gary Payton II being, you know, essentially, again, like a six foot three role man who, you know, he wasn't the shooter. So he had to have the rim gravity. And for, you know, Gary Payton, a lot of it was just his ridiculous athleticism, right? But, you know, the flip side of that is it's becoming a lot more 
about you know the specific functions that you can fulfill rather than whether you have what would be considered quote unquote traditional size for those particular roles and you know on the one hand it does make it easier to sort of imagine a context in which a smaller center can work right but on the flip side it's like okay you know if you're going to be the one man in you have to be so spectacular as an interior finisher that it sort of overrides the fact that no one's going to pay attention to you when you're you know, further than 15 feet away from the basket. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think um, at the end of the day, like if the, if NBA teams could create players in a lab, uh, they would all be seven foot four and plus with massive wingspans and they would all shoot, pass, uh, dribble and defend, right? So at the end of the day is, a matter of how many skills can you put on the floor at the same time with the appropriate... It's still a game where if you're taller, you're going to have some sort of an advantage. Um, I think uh, Kevin McHale used to say, like, uh, small skilled beats tall stiff, but Mm -hmm. tall skilled beats small skilled. So... um, It, it it's still going to be like size is still going to matter even though you have those out, outlier cases like you mentioned a, a Gary Payton or like the the case always mentioned is Draymond Green being a six foot six Swiss Army knife that could play you know on defense could play one for five like there there's going to be those outlier cases where you can do that. And not necessarily have um, a level of. I, I do think Draymond has a level of offensive skill set, but he's not the type of. He doesn't have the type of skill set that a six foot six guy generally has. Yeah. So there's going to be those outlier cases, of course, but it comes back to the beginning. Don't look for. Don't think that a player is going to be a don't think that a prospect is going to be a Hall of Famer automatically. Those cases, like the Draymond cases, are uh, far few and and between to think that there's going to be a Draymond in in every draft. Uh, So I think what I mean by that is that if you see a six-foot-six player that can't shoot but is a tremendous defender, it by no means I'm not saying don't draft him. I'm just saying that don't do be aware of survivorship bias and think about all the other six, 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 five, six, seven players who couldn't shoot and flunked out of the NBA instead of thinking about the only one who's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I think about this with Draymond and Kawhi Leonard specifically all the time. They are the exceptions that prove the rule, not the other way around. It's so ridiculously many things have to go perfectly right for Draymond Green to be Draymond Green, right? I mean, David Lee has to get hurt at the right time. The Warriors have to have a need for his specific skill set at the right time. Steve Kerr has to take advantage of that opening in the lineup to put Draymond in over David Lee and has to continue to do that, even though David Lee was a multi-time all-star and Draymond Green was a you know, four-year college senior who hadn't proven anything in the NBA up to that point, right? Everything had to go perfect. And for Kawhi, you know, the idea coming in was, oh, you know, he's the three and D guy if he can shoot, if only he can shoot, if he can develop the shot, right? And how many players over the years, and I'm 
guilty of it as much as anyone. I loved Scotty Lewis heading into, you know, his first year draft buys, but it's so many things have to go right for a non-shooting six, seven defense first wing to become even close to Kawhi Leonard. And so many things have to go right for a six, six defensive minded big who can pass to become Draymond green. It's, so many different factors have to fit in perfectly for those players to work that again, it's like they are the exception that proves the rule. It's like, look how much had to go right for them to be hall of famers and look how many hundreds of prospects had similar sort of concepts that could not put together enough to make it work to the degree that those two guys did. One of the lessons that I learned in the draft is that I used to have this mindset of, if a prospect, if the only thing that worries you about a prospect is the shooting, then he should be, this is specifically talking about the 2021 draft and the international guys on that on that class. I thought Usman Garuba was going to be the best one of those guys, just because I thought if there's if there's a, a developmental context in which he learns how to shoot, he's going to be in the NBA. And I, I, I said to myself, I remember saying, NBA teams get the shot development right more often times that, that than they're not. They don't. And it, it just obviously blew up in my face. But, um, but now I, I feel like shooting development and shooting translation to the NBA is way more uh, complex than I thought at the time. At, at that time, I think I was way more optimistic on shooting development for, for players. And so the the lesson I learned is nothing is automatic. Not every development is automatic. And, you know, sh- shooting, especially Usman Garuba wasn't a guard, especially for guards. And that's why I, I thought a lot of people was going to, was uh, being, uh, you know, super harsh on, Scoot Henderson at the beginning beginning of the season mm-hmm. when he was shooting really poorly, like it takes time. Shooting takes time in the NBA, especially for guards. Uh, so shooting development is still one of those things where, unless the player is absolutely elite at at every level of shooting, it's really hard for me to uh, say with confidence he's going to be an elite shooter. You know, we had this discussion the other day with uh, Sagri Sachet uh, about Sagri Sachet, where it's like Sagri Sachet is shooting 47% from three this season in France on good volume. But it's also the first season he has done it. So we were saying if he goes to Detroit, and, and I particularly said that if he goes to Detroit, I don't know if he's going to be an elite shooter because that context can make an elite shooter turn into a mediocre shooter and yeah. a mediocre shooter turn him into a non-shooter. Um, so uh, unless like you are, have been absolutely elite your entire career or at least a couple of years as a shooter and you have great volume and great mechanics and are versatile and, you know, have great percentages it's really hard for me to put my foot down and say this guy's going to be an elite shooter because after many years, the only thing I know is that I don't know. <laughs> I mean, to be fair to Enjai and to bring the discussion back to him, you know, he has at least shown a willingness to shoot threes and, you know, he's knocking them down at 
31% clip, which is not exactly anything particular to write home about, but you know, the combination of his willingness to take them and the fact that he's at least in the low 30s, it's the kind of thing where, you know, I wrote recently about Dylan Mitchell and I would love for Dylan Mitchell to take three pointers and knock them down at a 31% clip because that would be a huge step forward from where he's at now, right? It's the kind of thing where, okay, you know, the combination of the willingness to take them and the fact that the motion looks good for the most part and they're going in at a, you know, not great, but not awful rate, you know, there's reason for me to believe that he can figure it out with the shot, but it's exactly as you brought up with Risa Shea, right? And, you know, what Kings fans have been seeing with Davion Mitchell of he had, you know, the one spectacular season shooting from Baylor and, you know, the one year he went 45% in his last season. It's like, okay, has he really turned the corner as a shooter or is this a one-year blip? And I've referred to it before rather cruelly, but I think fairly as the Derek Williams principle of he had one year where he shot 40% from deep at Arizona and then never topped 30% again, you know, in the NBA after that and hadn't before then, right? So it's the kind of thing where the sample size of even one season of three-point shooting is pretty small, but, you know, when you have to sort of look outside that sample size, you know, one of the better indicators in my mind is at least he's willing to take them, right? And so it's a developmental area that clearly he's keyed in on, clearly he's focused on, and it'll just take time to see whether that's something that he's consistently improving or just something where he started taking them this year, but this is just kind of where he's going to be at as, you know, a not great, but, you know, not abysmal kind of shooter. Volume is everything for me. And I I refer to that, you refer to that as the Derek Williams effect. I always called it the Wade Baldwin effect. He had that season uh, shooting 40%, 40, 42%, I think. He gets drafted, but if I recall correctly, uh, he had like, he took one three per game. So, of course, he gets to the NBA and he's an on shooter uh, because that wasn't a huge part of his game. And when it comes to Njaya, I think the, the interesting thing about him is that coming up in in the pipeline for Real Madrid in the junior levels, he was more of a, not even a four, like he was a, a traditional five who, you know, got the ball on the block and went to work and was able to, you know, convert shots, convert like those difficult shots and post-ups and et cetera. And he gets to the professional level and he's playing next to seven foot three Walter Tavares. And they say, they tell him, okay, now you're a spot-up shooter. And he's now more than half of his field goal attempts are three-point shots. And so that speaks volumes about his willingness to adapt and also about how much shooting has become a part of his offensive game and his offensive repertoire. The volume still concerns me because he takes only one and a half shots per game because he only plays 12 minutes per game. Sure. and so the volume is 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 a bit concerning, uh, but at the same time, the fact that he makes he's able to make those shots, even thirty one percent of them, you know, when he's you know a player that plays twelve minutes per game and takes less than two threes per game could have, you know, issues getting him in, in rhythm, and he and he's thriving in spite of that. So there there definitely. Even if the the like overall volume is a bit concerning, the fact that so many of his field goal attempts are threes is, I think, pretty awesome. 
So before we wrap up, there were a few other players that you mentioned in this piece that I think would be good to go through. So, you know, these two guys are two guys who have, in a way, gotten buzz for not getting buzz, whereas there are a few other names you mentioned that haven't even gotten the buzz about not getting the buzz, who've been pretty productive overseas so far this year. Yeah, I'm just going to rattle them off like um, lining round style. So I think the first one I I mentioned was Jan Grullo. He's playing in the German league. He's 6'9", playing as a center, really long arms, uh, a guy that can create events inside as a a rebounder and as a shot blocker. Uh, But um, yeah, I, I think he suffers from the same, you know, issues that Yang in terms of not being super strong and, you know, struggling through physicality. But there's definitely something there with him with his ability to, you know, create events and events in the sense of like blocks and offensive rebounds and etc. I think there's there's definitely something interesting to keep track. Also considering that he was born in 2005, so he'll turn 19 this year and he has, again, four drafts ahead of him um, in which he will be eligible one of the older guys, Juan Francisco Fernandez from Argentina playing in Spain. He's almost a veteran at this point. Um, he's a 6'10 center who is really good at, at, at everything, but not elite at anything. But I think he's going to be a really great pro overseas. And maybe he ends up being one of, ends up being a, a late pick for, for a team that says, hey, maybe this guy ends up becoming like an, an MVP or an all-Euroleague team type of guy in the future, uh, and and they just stash him overseas. It's kind of the the guy that's hard to like really get excited about because he's, again, not a lead at anything, but he's really good and really solid at, at you know, running the floor, scoring inside, defending inside and out. Um, so, yeah. Um, Musa Sanya is another guy uh, out of Gambia. He's playing in Spain as well. Really athletic, six seven wing has been really productive. Um, again, solid guy across the board, but not really. I, I think he could be a, a a good, maybe impactful defender, but maybe the offense is a bit too raw for him to be an NBA prospect. Uh, he was born 2003, so uh, he's going to be eligible until 2025, but he's certainly productive. Uh, and then finally, I wanted to mention Ege Demir from Turkey. He was initially committed to UCLA. I think it was in last year's class. So it was class of, I think it was class of 2023. And then he, his movement and ended up getting blocked and he continued his career in Turkey. Um, I I don't want to do the lazy comparison with with Adam Pona, uh, because they played pretty much on on the same league, but similar type of prospect in slightly undersized for being a center, slightly more mobile and fluid than you would expect for his position, but he certainly thrives, you know, being a physical strong center that can score inside, can catch lobs, can protect the rim. And again, the the Turkish league is really competitive. 
and he's been thriving playing against grown men in Turkey. So there might be something to watch there. He was born in 2004, so he'll turn 20 on, on this year. Um, so yeah, a, a lot of prospects that we could... There, There's a ton more. I think it's... I, I wrote a piece earlier, I think late last year, about how productivity should be something that should be monitored when it comes to international prospects. And I feel like these players at least deserve to be on 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 a couple of watch lists to see if if they have a late season surge or maybe they come into camps into the combine and they kill it and end up on boards, or maybe they are prospects that should be on your watch list for twenty twenty five. Awesome. Well, he is Ignacio Risotto. You can find him on Twitter at Airball, E-Y-R-E-B-A-L-L. I am just now getting the pun as I read the name out, so well done, you. <laughs> awesome. Uh, you can also find his written work on the No Ceilings NBA website, and you should, of course, be sure to check out his piece called We Need to Talk About Hanson Yang and Eli, John, and Jai, which we talk about for this episode. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find my written work on the No Ceilings NBA website as well. If you've been enjoying the show, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback regarding the deep dive specific portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>